I'm going to do a couple different things this morning. First of all, I'm going to go back to two weeks ago when we released um, Words of Knowledge, and a word of knowledge came where someone said chicken nuggets. Do you remember that? Just chicken nuggets. And nobody responded to that. Nobody said anything. But two people came to me after church and said, that was for me, that was for me. And it didn't have to do with healing, but it had to do with relationships and issues in their family and said, that was specifically for me. That was an encouragement to me. So the word of knowledge came not for healing, but for encouragement. And God can do those kinds of things. He can speak in that way. And um, so sometimes the strangest things happen and the Holy Spirit will give us kind of seemingly strange things. And we go, what am I supposed to do with that? So I'm going to give you an example this morning of a really crazy one. Not my story, but it was by Graham Cook, who is a spiritual father in the body of Christ. He was a minister in England. He's since moved to California. And uh, I've been under his teaching. We have a lot of his teachings and read his books. If you can read his his books are hard to read. Uh, but he's just, he's, he's one of the people in the body of Christ where I'm jealous. He makes me jealous of his relationship with the Holy Spirit because he's so intimate. They just, he just has conversations with him. And the Holy Spirit just says, drive down this road, turn left, turn right. Okay, go another two blocks. All right, turn here, go in that building. And he goes in and finds what the Lord's telling him to find. It's like, what? Anyway, he was doing a series of meetings when he was living in England. He was at a church doing a series of meetings, and the meetings were over. He was tired. He was ready to go home. Thought, I can hardly wait to get on the train and go home. And the leaders from the church came and said, can you do one more thing after the Sunday morning service? Can you do one more thing? Pray with this woman in our church who wants to be a missionary in, in China. She's leaving shortly. And we'd just like to have you pray for and see if you have a word from the Lord for. So Graham's like, oh, okay, whatever. Shouldn't, this shouldn't take long. Five minutes and we're out of here and I'm on my way home. So he walks into this room where there's some folks and this woman. And right away, he just gets a real bad feeling. He's like, okay, what's that? Not really getting. So he says, okay. So they just kind of got quiet. And, and Graham hears from the Holy Spirit this phrase, tell her, I hate mommies and daddies. And he's like, what? What? No way. Do you have anything else? (laughs) Different words, something a little different. And so the folks there saying, is the Lord giving you anything? He said, well, he said, I'm I'm working on it. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to hear. I'm trying to, you know, hear what the Lord's saying. And so he's fumbling around. He said, I can't say that. Holy Spirit, come on, give me something else for this lady. She's going to be a missionary. Tell her, I hate mommies and daddies. So he says, he says, Lord, that's not even biblical. It's not biblical. It's not a good thing to say. Why would you give me that? I hate mommies and daddies. So he's fumbling around, and he's, try- he's just trying to avoid it. And then one of the leader's wives comes in with a tea, uh, tray of tea. They're in England, right? They drink tea. It's, oh, good, tea. So she serves everybody, sits down and relaxes, and I'm off the hook. And then one of the leaders says, do you have a word for it? Is the Lord saying anything? He's like, oh, man. So he says, well, the Lord isn't giving me anything else. And uh, he keeps insisting on that. So I tell her, I hate mommies and daddies. So he says, okay, uh, here's, here's, what I, 
Here's what I think the Lord may be saying. I believe that he, he, he wants you to, to know. He, I, he, what the Lord wants you to know is he hates mommies and daddies. Absolute silence. The color drains out of the woman's face. Her eyes start to squint, and she jumps on him and attacks him, saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And she's... Just, I'm the, now, words of knowledge don't normally go this way, so when we ask for the Lord for words of knowledge here, don't get that's not normal. Um, but she, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, and, and nobody knew what to do, and Graham's trying to get off. He spilled his tea on his shirt, which upset him more than anything. And he finally said, in Jesus' name, get off! And she fell on the floor. He was just out under the spirit. He said, that's... Good enough for me. I'm out of here. Goodbye. And he walks out the door, <laughs> changed his shirt, and came back about 10 minutes later. And they started waking her up and getting her back to be able to converse. And as it turns out, when she was a little girl, her father and his brothers used to molest her, sexually abused her, and they called the game Mommies and Daddies. So what the Holy Spirit did was took just a few words and went, boom. Now, if we're concerned about what we share, we may not be able to help people that the Holy Spirit wants us to help. And in just a short period of time, just he, Graham said in about 15 minutes, that woman was delivered from that, that she was trying to hide. She was working hard to not let anyone ever know what she had been through. And she was going to China because she was convinced that she would never be able to have a normal relationship, marriage relationship with a man because of her past. So she was running away. She thought, if I go to China, nobody's going to want to marry me over there, so I'll be safe. That was her thinking. And so in just a short amount of time, she was set free from that. She didn't go to China. She started dating. <laughs> it was quite a turnaround. So when it comes to words of knowledge, you just never know. And I, that doesn't mean that we try to be weird. I don't want to be weird. You know, I, I mean, I don't mind being different sometimes when it, because sometimes that can make a point, but I'm not out to, to be weird. But the Holy Spirit knows what's in someone's heart. And knows what the key is that will unlock that. And so we have to be so sensitive to the Lord. And if he gives you something and you're not sure about it, ask him. Is this really from you? And again, when I, when I talk about the fact that we're kind of informal here, it's okay for us to try things. And if we mess up, it's okay. I mean, we're reaching for things spiritually that we ha- we're learning as we're going. Okay? We're learning as we go which is okay with me. It means that we're pushing the barriers. We're pushing the boundaries. We're, we're trying to find out what, how far we, what, what we can do, how we can be creative in expanding the kingdom of God and how we can be cooperating with the Holy Spirit. God is always wanting to release new things. But if we just stick with the same old, same old all the time, we'll always have the same old, same old. And I don't want the same old, same old all the time. I want everything that God has for us, as much as we're able to enter into Okay, so much for that. Now we're going to go back to Matthew, but we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 2. We talked about the Magi the last time. We're going to just finish this up and talk about a few other things. One of the things that we don't know a lot about Jesus is his childhood. 
Bible doesn't talk about his childhood very much and what it was like for him growing up. And we're going to investigate that just a little bit this morning <clears throat> and see if there's anything, any other understanding that we can gain. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. When they had gone, the Magi, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What I find interesting about this particular passage is that God, again, speaks to Joseph in a dream. He reveals some things to him and gives him some direction in a dream. God still speaks through dreams, and there's a lot of instances in the Bible where God uses dreams. He speaks to, to believers and non-believers. He spoke to Jewish uh, folks and non-Jewish folks, pagans or pagan Gentiles, whatever you want to call folks outside of faith in God. Uh, I listed. A, I just went through it quickly and listed a bunch of them. Abimelech was the king of Gerar, and Abraham and Sarah moved next to him. And Abraham told them, well, this isn't my wife, she's my sister, because he was afraid they'd kill him, take her. And the Lord gave Abimelech a dream and said, you've got another man's wife. And so Abimelech was a little mad at Abraham for lying to him, not telling him the truth. Jacob had a dream at Bethel. Jacob also had a dream about spotted and speckled sheep. That story always bugged me until I put it together. How did he know that if he put up these sticks or something and painted them different colors or whatever, white and black, that when the, when the sheep and goats came to get water, that the offspring would be speckled and spotted? How did he know? I mean, that doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. So again, one of those things where God asks, tells somebody to do, how did God tell him what to do? He had a dream. God revealed it to, to him in a dream how to ensure that there were a lot more spot and speckled sheep. Just do this. Well, it had nothing to do with what he actually did. had nothing to do with producing that. It had to do with the fact that he was obedient to God, and God then honored his obedience and gave him spot and speckled That's a whole other story. His, uh, Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, had a dream and encountered God when Jacob ran away and, and warned, Jacob not to, warned Laban not to harm Jacob when he took off. Of course, we have Joseph's dreams as well about the sheaves of wheat bowing down and the sun, moon, and stars bowing down when he was just a boy. And then uh, the baker and the butler, when Joseph was in prison, had dreams, and Joseph interpreted them. Then Pharaoh had dreams, and Joseph interpreted those dreams. Solomon had God appear to him in a dream. It says, in a dream, God appeared to him. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And it terrified him, and so he looked for someone that could tell him what the dream meant. It was that dream of that um, huge figure of a man that was gold and silver and bronze and then clay and, and uh, iron. Gideon heard 
a dream. He snuck down into the Midianite camp, and they were next to a tent. And one of the guys in the tent said, I had a dream, and it was this barley loaf came rolling down the hill and hit our tent. (laughs) Which means that Gideon's going to destroy us. So Gideon heard the dream and the interpretation and was encouraged to go ahead to fight the Midianites. Uh, Daniel had dreams. The prophet Joel speaks of this time where old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. Of course, the Magi had dreams. Joseph had dreams. Pilate's wife had a dream. And she said to, to Pilate, don't have anything to do with that man. I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. And so God uses dreams, and I believe that he wants to use dreams in our lives. And, and again, it's like anything, if we honor what God tells us, he'll give us more. And so if we honor the dreams that he gives us, and how do we honor the dreams? Well, we write them down. Some people will keep a dream journal next to their bed. So if they have a dream at night and they wake up, they get up right away and write it down. Because so many times if we have a dream, we don't write it down right away, we forget it. And there are those dreams that are particularly powerful, or at least they seem significant. And once you write it down, then you begin to ask the Lord, well, what is the interpretation? What does this mean? Give me revelation. And the whole idea is to develop that kind of intimacy with the Lord. Why does he speak in dreams? Because our brains aren't engaged, and he can can share things with us in this allegorical language picture way where we don't get in with our minds and go, well, that, that could never happen. I don't, what's that about? I don't, you know, we, we, can't, we can't mess with it, if you know what I mean. And so he gives dreams that way. All right, so let's, I want to talk about Jesus' childhood a little bit. We know very little about Jesus' childhood, what it was like. Um, but we have a little more insight, perhaps, than we realize. David was in uh, Jesus' family line. We know that uh, the Jews have been looking for the Messiah to come from David's line. And actually, in their thinking, uh, the Messiah would reestablish the kingdom that David had. That's what they're waiting for. But we want to go back and look at David. David was from the tribe of Judah. And Jacob, when Jacob was an old man, he prophesied over his sons. All 12 of them. He spoke word over them. And over Judah, he said, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, he said, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. And so we see that even even Jacob understood that Judah would be the ruler, uh, even of his brothers, that the scepter would not depart. The interesting thing is that, and I don't know how all this works. I don't know, I don't know. I know that right from the start, from the time of Adam and Eve, the enemy was trying to destroy the godly line so the seed of the woman could never come. Satan was determined not to allow the Messiah to come, for Jesus to be born, the Redeemer to come. And so he was, that's why, part of the reason why I believe that Cain killed Abel. Abel was the righteous one, and he was going to carry on. Um the line that would eventually bring the Messiah. That's why when um, Eve had her son Seth, she said, now God has given me this, this man um, who will carry it on. 
But the, the story of Judah is kind of interesting because, again, we see the conflict and the difficulty. Abraham had trouble having a child. He waited 25 years for his wife Sarah, and they were both very old. And so God said, I'm going to bless you and, and no child. So the enemy's always at work trying to steal what, or destroy or confuse or stop what God's doing. Um, Isaac and Rebekah had a little bit of trouble until God finally opened her womb and she had twins. But you come to Judah, and Judah had three sons. And when the first one was old enough, he married Tamar, Tamar. And he died childless. So they took the second son and married. She married Tamar, and he died childless. And the third son was a little too young to get married, and Judah thought, I'm not going to let this woman have this son. She's got a very good track record. Uh, I'll, be, I'll have no one left. And so he never gave his younger son to her. And that was part of the law, part of Old Testament law, that if a, uh, in order to carry on the family line, if, if uh, one, the oldest son, marries and uh, he dies childless, then the next in order is to marry that woman and produce offspring for the firstborn is the way it's actually supposed to go. And so Tamar was in the house, in the tents, not being given to the youngest son, so she dressed up like a prostitute, sat by the well in one little city. Judah comes walking along, doesn't realize it's his daughter-in-law. Says, come on, let's go. She becomes pregnant by her father-in-law, but he doesn't know it. And a little while later, they find out that she's pregnant, and he wants to kill her. Let's stone her. But for payment that day, she asked for his signet ring and his staff. Give me your signet ring and staff, and you can send a sheep later. You could never find her after that. So when they were getting ready to prepare to, to stone uh, Tamar, she said, the father of the child that I'm carrying, she had twins, the father of the child is the owner of these two, the staff and the ring, and Judah's like, duh. So the, the reason I'm telling you this story is that in the tribe of Judah, there was this kind of immorality, which is important. Uh, there's, there's, there's immorality. And then we also know within that line is Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, marries into that family line. So in Jesus' ancestry is this story about Judah and his daughter-in-law and Rahab, the prostitute, and then David comes along. Now, what if you got a call, a telephone call, from Billy Graham. And he said, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to, I, I want to meet with your family. Gather your family together. I'm coming to your home. Okay? Specifically to you. Who wouldn't you invite in your family? Is there anybody in your family you wouldn't invite? Samuel the prophet goes to Jesse and says, Jesse, I'm coming to your house and I'm going to celebrate a festival with you, a meal with you. Gather your family together and I'll tell you what I'm going to do when we get there. So Jesse gets his whole family together except David. Why didn't he invite David? I mean, does that make any sense? David was old enough to take care of the sheep. The leading 
the leader of Israel. He was not only a prophet, but he was the, the uh, governmental leader of Israel at the time. Goes to one man and says, Jesse, get your family together. I'm coming and I'm going to eat a meal with you. And they, he, leaves, <laughs> he leaves David out. Samuel gets there and says, are these all the sons? He said, well, no, it's like he got caught, you know. Well, yeah, there's one more. There's the David. We'll go get him. And he couldn't have been very far away because they held up the meal until they ran and got him and brought him to the meal. So it couldn't have been that far away. It couldn't have been the big deal to get him there. What, well, what's the deal? I would, I would theorize that it's possible that David was an illegitimate son of Jesse. It says in, in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Well, children being conceived in a marriage is not a sin, is it? But he, but he says, I was conceived in sin. So it's possible that David was illegitimate, um, and Jesse was embarrassed. By that, I mean, here comes the the godly man. I need to hide my indiscretions, and so he kind of covers that up. And then we see that that generational immorality really took took its toll in David's life when he sinned with Bathsheba and uh, killed Uriah, murder, and then it just transferred into his family. Uh, had a son rape a daughter. Another son killed that his brother and just a mess from all those things that happened with David. But we see that in the line. And the reason that I'm saying that is because he wrote this psalm, verse uh, chapter 69. It's a psalm of David. And I want to look at verse 6 and following, 12. Lord, the, all, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, God of Israel. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. And those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Well, that's kind of an interesting psalm. Now, we also know that this is a messianic psalm, so he's really talking about Jesus as well. David, obviously, it says that he was, um, a, I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. In other words, he, he felt like an outcast in his own family. And we know that his brothers didn't care for him a whole lot. When he went to visit them when they were in the army, they kind of uh, were nasty to him. But this, this psalm is about Jesus. So let's think about that for a minute. What was Jesus' childhood like? <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. I'm thinking, okay, when did Jesus suffer? He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. We don't have a, a, a whole lot of record of that, that he suffered. Uh, he suffered on the cross. We know that. We know that there was tremendous suffering. But he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So there must have been significant suffering in his childhood. 
and he learned obedience from it. What kind of suffering? Well, perhaps this psalm gives us some insight. Let's look at it again and think of it from the perspective that it's talking about Jesus. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, God of Israel. May those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure your scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Now remember that Jesus was also considered to be an illegitimate son of Joseph. Right? Because they weren't officially married. They were betrothed, they were engaged, and she was found to be pregnant. And one of the accusations that the religious leaders hurled at Jesus is, we know Moses and we know Abraham, but who's this guy? We don't know who his father is. We don't know who his father is. I mean, it just kind of throws it out there. We don't know who his father is. And so Jesus must have received some kind of scorn for, in that regard concerning who his father was and the fact that he was seemingly illegitimate. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? The, the most legitimate person who ever lived was accused of being illegitimate. Isn't that just like the enemy? Verse 9, for zeal for your house consumes me. That's, that's actually quoted in the New Testament um, later on. Um, in John chapter 2, verse 17, his disciples remembered that his written zeal for your house will consume me. So that's a direct reference by the disciples about Jesus in this psalm. They, they cite this psalm as, as being about him. And it was when he went into the temple and overturned the, the tables of the money changers and those that were selling and defiling the temple. He said, my father's house would be a house of prayer. And they thought, hey, zeal for your house will consume me. And so they think about that in reference to Jesus. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. Well, what does that mean? When he, when he weeps... And fast, they're ridiculing him. They're ridiculing him. I don't know how much he wept. I don't know how much he fasted. I don't know what his, his, what his level, level of commitment as a child was to relationship with his father. Hard for us to imagine. But what, he say, what this is saying is that he's enduring scorn because of it. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. There's nothing that people can't stand more than the annoyance of a good example. <laughs> I think Mark Twain said that. <laughs> that's not from the Bible. I think, that's, I think that was Mark Twain. People can't stand a goody two-shoes, can they? And so I think we have a little bit of insight. And then this last line, those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. Can you imagine the local folks that drink too much make up some little ditty about Jesus and sing and mock him? And everybody knows the little tune about the kid from Nazareth who we don't know who his dad is. And you know what? That, when, I, when I think about that, and I believe that this is a, a messianic psalm, and I believe that it is talking about Jesus, and I can honestly see these things happening to him. 
And the amazing thing that I, that I, folks, I have trouble dealing with these kinds of things, and I'm 61. (laughs) But a child without sin, without sin, somehow maintained the right attitude through all of this. Why would he weep? Probably because he was being ridiculed and scorned. Said, Father, how do I handle this? What should I do? What should my reaction be? We have one little story about Jesus, other than at his birth, one little insight into his childhood, and everybody's familiar with that. It's when he was 12 years old, and his parents went to Jerusalem with the family, and they went for Passover, some celebration, And when they left, when the whole entourage left, they didn't know that Jesus wasn't there. And they traveled, and it was three days till Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus wasn't with them and turned back and looked for him and found him in the temple. They thought he was with some other relative that they were traveling with. And so it says in verse uh, uh, Luke chapter 2, Verse 49, he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now that's a really interesting insight in light of what we just looked at. Zeal for your house will consume me. So he's spending time in the temple. His parents came and said, I was just, I'm, I'm all about my father's business, my father's business. He knew who his father was. He knew who his father was. And verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. What happens when somebody who is an annoyingly good example continues to be an annoyingly good example? Eventually, people realize that there's some real depth of character there, and he begins to gain favor, favor with not only with God, but with man. So I'm going to ask you... What's going on in your life? What kind of opposition are you getting? What kind of difficulties do you have? How do you react to them? Are you growing in favor with God and man by your reactions to the things that come against you? What did Jesus deserve that came against him? Nothing. Nothing. What do we do? (laughs) What do we do? that may bring some of that on us, and how do we react to it? And the real key to growing in favor with God and man, the real key to developing character is the right response to problems, to difficulties. Either make you bitter or better. They either become a stumbling block or a stepping stone. Sometimes we wonder why God allows things into our lives that are so difficult. And we don't look, and I know at times it's it's difficult to think of them this way, but 
difficulties can be a blessing if we're willing to really just submit to his lordship and allow him to be God in every situation. So the drunkards sang little ditties about Jesus. (laughs) One day the universe will be filled with praises to him. Even now all over the world people are lifting up songs of rejoicing and praise to Jesus. Are they not? And, and he was willing to do that. And so for us it becomes, it becomes um, it becomes a matter of submission to the Father's will because that's what Jesus really embraced. He embraced a complete, total surrender to the Father's will. And I have a feeling he developed the, the ability, he developed the ability that when difficult things came, to go to the Father first and say, now what do I do? Before he reacted. How many of you do that? Before you react to something that happens, you go to the Father and say, how should I handle this? Or do you react first and then tell somebody else and then tell somebody else and then, then go, uh, Lord, what do you want me to do? I, you know, you already messed everything up, right? I mean, how do we react? And God's wanting us to get to the place where we're more like Jesus, where it doesn't go there. It doesn't go there. Is it possible for us to get to the place where it doesn't matter what comes across our path. It doesn't matter what happens to us. It doesn't matter what anybody says to us because we're so in love with him. We're so focused on him that his opinion is the only one that matters. And when people come against us or situations come against us, if it's people that just have a problem with us, then we just pray for them and bless them. And we understand that they've got issues. But we don't lord it over them and we don't think ourselves superior to them. We bless them. And so I think if you have time, you can read that whole psalm. The whole Psalm 69 is about Jesus. But that particular segment right there is really... perhaps insightful, and it helps, to, it helps me. It helps me to look at Jesus and his life and possibly what he went through as a child that developed in him the character. He was perfect. I understand he was God, but he learned obedience, so there was a development of character in him that took place because he was human. And that happened, believe it, that happened without sin. And you know what that means to me? It's possible for us to have difficulties come and react the right way and let it become a building block in our lives rather than something where we give in to the enemy and go the enemy's way and just make the whole situation worse. Jesus is worthy of praise. Worthy of praise. What a wonderful Savior.